0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts, alongside Jim Deshays. I'm Len Casper from the Cubs television crew. I hope you've had a good week, J.D. We've enjoyed watching good baseball.
1: Yeah, well, just watching baseball, period, right? It's great to be back in the saddle. Uh, and, and the fact that it's good baseball and winning baseball has been, been a lot of fun. The Cubs are uh, playing great ball right now. The starting pitching has been outstanding. Uh scoring plenty of runs defensively. They've been really tight. Uh, There is a little bit of an issue at the end of the games. Craig Kimbrell continues to struggle in that closer's role, uh, but other guys have stepped up, and uh, yeah, everything's looking pretty rosy for this club.
0: We will talk some baseball and beyond with our guest this week, Arlo White. He is the lead Premier League broadcaster on NBC Sports, and also, J.D. is a huge Cubs fan, and the story about how that came about is pretty interesting.
1: Right, I, I would imagine people saying, "Wait a minute, Arlo White, why is he on a, a baseball Cub-focused broadcast?" But if you if you listen, you're going to find out. It's, it's a great story. He's a huge Cub fan, a really engaging uh, guy, and, and a lot of fun.
0: And has a great voice. Enjoy our conversation with Arlo White. Arlo, thanks for joining us
2: this week. How are you? I'm really good, Len, and it's a delight to to join the two of you. Absolute pleasure.
0: We're going to dive into your life uh, during the pandemic and getting back to work, but uh, you've been watching the Cubs a lot, I know, uh, when you have some downtime. And uh, how nice
2: is it for you to have baseball back in your life? Well, it's a delight because everything has changed, hasn't it, recently? And all the rhythms of what is a normal summer have been thrown completely off kilter. Um, so for me, it was very unusual to be announcing Premier League soccer in July. Uh, we expected to be doing it in shirt sleeves and shorts. Um, that wasn't the case because the British summer, as per usual, was a crushing disappointment. So we often had uh, big coats on <laughs> and were shivering together in the month of July. But it was still quite Strange, and there were times when I would usually be on vacation with the family, or um, or, or or in America somewhere, and there would always be baseball involved—be it on the television, be it at Wrigley Field. Last summer, we went to uh, to see the Tampa Bay uh, Rays play. Um, and and it's it has been very strange. It's been very strange for everybody. But to see that it's back, uh, and I f- I feel very similar to to the way I feel about the Premier League and soccer coming back, that it isn't ideal that there are no crowds there. And what makes Wrigley Field so special, as I've, I've experienced myself twenty odd times, is the people. It's the fans. It's the atmosphere. It's the friendly nature um, of of the ballpark. And with that not being there, it's incumbent upon yourself and JD and Patton and the guys on the radio side as well to bring through that atmosphere, which you do so beautifully. And that was my job with the Premier League as well. But just to just to hear the crack of the ball on the bat, just to, just to sense the game is back, I felt it with the Premier League and I'm sure you guys feel it with baseball. It's just lovely to have it back in our lives.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, And JD could speak to this too. I think the biggest thing I miss with the fans is is obviously the organic anticipation that is not there, where there's a a line drive down the right field line and you're wondering, is it going to be fair or foul? Will a ball be a home run? Will it be caught? And you can kind of match the volume, I guess, synthetically with the pumped in crowd noise after the fact but it's that anticipation and buzz leading up to a big play that that we really miss
1: yeah and for me it's the fan response right when when something big happens uh as as an analyst right somebody hits a home run and you know it comes at a big moment and you really want to you know jump on that replay and, and and a lot of times the fans are still going you know nuts And so that brings your energy up as a color guy, responding to that. And when that's not there, you kind of have to, you're you're kind of yelling, but you feel like you're yelling into a void.
2: Yeah, it's been really odd, um, but I made a decision quite early on that... I mean, we resumed on June the 17th and we had two make-up games on the first night of the Premier League restart. So we did the second of those because it was, quote-unquote, a bigger game. It was Manchester City, who were the current champions before Liverpool relieved them of their title a few weeks later, against Arsenal. So two of the biggest teams. Um, and I decided very early on that I was going to pump the, the crowd noise in as loud as I could because the generic broadcast that goes out on NBC or NBCSN would have that crowd noise with it. And I was a proponent of it because we heard uh, the Bundesliga in Germany come back a few weeks earlier. And to start with, it was just the stadium audio. Now, a lot of people liked it. Uh, you could hear the the players shouting to each other. You could hear the coaches. But, but I... I I liked it for a while but then just hearing the thud of boot on ball echo around a stadium and these cries echo around a stadium it just it 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 made you aware that this wasn't authentic not that it wasn't authentic it made you aware that this wasn't the event that you're that you were used to um and I didn't mind just drawing that sort of layer over the top of it of, of disbelief of suspending disbelief a little bit um so i decided to to crank the volume up and and there were a couple of games where there was one in particular i remember at southampton against manchester city it was a sunday afternoon and southampton were a struggling team in the middle of the table they were in a decent run of four manchester city one of the one of the great teams of recent years in the premier league and southampton scored an early goal and then just defended for their lives And when we took the the headphones off at the end, they preserved a 1-0 victory under the most incredible pressure and duress from Manchester City. And we found that we were sort of matching what would have been the atmosphere, but because obviously we've got the augmented audio pumped into our ears. And at the end, I was saying, what a magnificent effort by Southampton. They have withstood the most incredible pressure. And... We took, we handed back to the studio and Lee Dixon and I, my, my co commentator, took the headphones off and we could have heard a pin drop. And it was the most bizarre experience. And then we kind of thought to ourselves, actually, could the players have heard us? Because we were, we were shouting so loudly. But it, just, it was just an idea of, of, of my approach to it, which was just get into this event as much as you possibly can. If the game's awful, then that, there's, there's no, you can't sell that. But when it was an, as exciting as that, Just suspend uh, belief for a while because I think people will appreciate that at home. And the feedback was, wow, we felt that that was like a normal game in front of thirty-five thousand people. So, but we, but you do miss, as you say, you know, the roar after a goal is scored in soccer is. spine tingling at times you know when, when a when a when a shot narrowly misses the post or a crunching tackle goes in and you can't replicate that but for the time being this is what we've got and i've always maintained chaps that this is better than nothing um you know during the dark days of lockdown I, I would have taken commentating on two flies crawling up a wall so so <laughs> uh you know a, a game of football albeit in an empty stadium for me is okay for now
0: yeah, great point. Uh, have you been uh, – so how often are you remotely calling uh, the action versus
2: actually being in uh, the stadium? We were very fortunate, and, and NBC fought um, pretty hard um, because we had a UK-based announced team, myself, Graham, Lasoli Dixon. We do a lot of three-man boos, but we were told we could only do two-man boos until the final day of the season. That was fine. Um, so as as overseas broadcasters go we were fortunate because you know instead of flying in guys from all across europe or or America or australia or asia as 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 you know companies do on a weekly basis um, we were already UK based so we had a distinct advantage so we were added on to the domestic broadcast teams that were obviously already here so we were very fortunate that we were able to go to the stadiums for all of the games and, you know I have experience of calling we, we call it off tube uh, over here um, and it's fine you know it's it's not ideal but it's but again if it's a, if that's the job for that day then then you get on with it and you do it uh, but we were very lucky that we were Able to be at at all the games, at the events, you know. As surreal as it was, I found I got used to it pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so we, we're very fortunate in in that regard, and hopefully that will continue in the new season, which starts on September the twelfth. Would you believe <laughs> it's seven weeks between seasons?
1: Yeah, so I have a, I have two questions, and I'm I'm just shifting gears here. I'm circling back, uh, not to derail this conversation, but I love the British turn of phrase. And uh, a few minutes ago, and I can't remember which clubs you were talking about, but one relieved someone else of their title. As if having the title was a burden. That's <laughs> such, yeah. such a kind way to put it. Like, oh my goodness, this championship is we can't deal with this any longer. So that's one. And two, you you, you referenced uh, narrating uh, flies. I mean, you didn't do that because that's, that's the other thing during the pandemic. There was all these British voices uh, narrating like dogs doing things and uh you know, raindrops racing down a window. And I said, is this just is this just fascinating for Americans to hear that accent doing this? Or does that play as well across the pond as it does here? And would people enjoy hearing Americans broadcast dogs responding to silly things? I don't think they would. I think it's a I think it's a I think it's a British phenomenon and I'm wickedly jealous.
2: <laughs> maybe it is maybe it is jd um the 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 man the, the scottish gentleman that that commentates and i forget the name of his two dogs um Ma- no one of them is mabel i forget the name yes. of the other one so he's got two he's got a, a labrador and a black labrador i think one is a lot older than the other and His commentary, he is a a, a former colleague of mine, BBC, he's a rugby and golf uh, TV announcer, and he's just a spectacular human being. He's just so intelligent, so wryly funny. Um, He's actually very good looking as well, so he's kind of got it all, which is quite annoying, but um, his... Uh, 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 twitter videos of this Uh, they've just been a phenomenon and they've been every bit as popular here as i think they have been in the us so i think one of them got about seven or eight million views on twitter which is absolutely extraordinary so he's carried on this as a as a sort of mini series i've seen various other people try try different things um i i just actually the way i approached it was just to get like parents or kids to send me goals that their their kids had scored in, in in youth club soccer in in the states or or funny things that had happened involving playing soccer in the front room or whatever and i put my voice to those so um we had a bit of fun doing that which which passed the time a little bit um but nothing quite as creative as as mr andrew cotter um who if he doesn't have a job in us broadcasting by the end of this i think there's something terribly wrong <laughs> I, I I'm
0: not surprised that you're a big baseball fan uh, as a as a soccer uh, uh, announcer and expert because the two sports do mesh together very well. I think there's a, a huge intellectual component to both. Uh, there are moments that that feel like there's a lot of downtime and not much happening when actually there is, and then there's a that that moment where you have to on a dime immediately. Raise your level right you, so there's yeah. there's there's just the dynamic nature uh, of the two games um, what was it that drew you to baseball uh, and and what age were you when you really
2: got into it well my story and, and my love of baseball is very much in, entwined with my love of the city of Chicago because they both, to me, are inseparable. They go hand in hand. My my aunt, Kath, who is actually my great aunt, she's my dad's aunt, but because of their age difference of a couple of years, they were more like brother and sister growing up. Well, she married uh, an American GI in 1959 and she, she lived um, in on the north side of Chicago from the age of 17 and she disappeared off the face of the earth as far as the family here were concerned for many many years um because you was know, no internet email that sort of thing she had uh, she visited a couple of times and, and my grandparents would go out there a couple of times and experience it um she she resurfaced um, in terms of uh, her presence to the family in the mid 80s she remarried a, a chap called bill grady who is uh, who's my uncle um and they came and, and honeymooned uh over here in 1984 and, and myself and bill just hit it off, um, and, and we are very close to this day. And they paid for me to, to visit Chicago in 1986 as a 13 year old, and I flew British Airways alone, uh, unaccompanied. There were about four or five of us, the kids that were for various reasons flying over uh, to Chicago to O'Hare, and and that trip um, for two and a half weeks changed the entire trajectory of of my life. And I can remember the first night um, that I was there again, pre-email. So my Uncle Bill worked for the American National Bank and he had some paperwork that he had to deliver. Now you just click a, a button and, and, and send it off by email. Well, he had to drive all the way from Evergreen Park on the south side, all the way to downtown and drop these, um, drop these, uh, the, these documents off. And I can remember, and they quote the story back to me, and we're in uh, Uncle Bill's Buick and we're on the Dan Ryan Expressway. And all of a sudden, it was nighttime, and all of a sudden the, the downtown area and the buildings and the light became visible to me. Now, I'm a kid from a small city called Leicester in the middle of England, tallest building, about 30 stories, perhaps. And then you've got the Sears Tower and the Hancock Building and the Standard Oil Building as they were then. And apparently, my I didn't blink for about five minutes and my jaw, my mouth was just slack-jawed. I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. Yes, I'd seen the movies, I'd seen the TV shows, but when you actually experience it for the first time it's just extraordinary and it it changed my life and then a couple of days later lo and behold we're at Wrigley Field Uh, we're watching an extra inning game Uh, the Cubs beat the Pirates I think 3-2, not a particularly good Cub team, I I looked it up just now before coming on and they went 70-90 and so they were so bad they didn't even bother with the other two games to complete (laughs) the season Um, but it was just extraordinary and it's just seared and imprinted on my brain and uh, I insisted that we go back to to, to Wrigley before uh, before my trip was over, and and hence the love affair began. Um, so I've always been a Cubs fan, even though uh, the pair, the um, excuse me, my family largely live on the south side now. They are staunch Cub fans, uh, and every time I've been able to go to Wrigley Field, I, I, I've done it. Um, and it's been a it's been a joy. Now the 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 problem for somebody in the UK, although you can watch a lot of games these days, is keeping across a 162 game season. So I'd probably watch about 10 to 15 per year. The ones I'm not at, I'd probably dip in and listen to a few here and there. But for me, Wrigley Field baseball, the Cubs is is an experience. Um, I follow the scores closely on a daily basis, but. For me, it's about what it represents, and it represents nostalgia for me. It, it represents an identity. It represents excitement. And when I, whenever I walk through the gates at Wrigley Field, I feel like I'm at home, and all the memories come rushing back, and it's just such a lovely feeling. And I, I sit there and maybe get a beer or you know hot dog and sit with my family or friends that I happen to take along, and and I've just got a huge smile on my face, win or lose. And and actually, I think the Cubs are something like sixteen and two or something when I'm when I'm there. So, you know, maybe uh, I could get invited back as a mascot at some stage, but. Um, <laughs> Um, it, 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 that's what it represents to me. So, you know, would I sit down and watch the Orioles take on, uh, you know, the Yankees? Maybe watch a couple of innings. But for me, I'm in, I'm invested in the Cubs, and that's through which, um, that's the prism through which um, I, I experience baseball and I experience the city of Chicago. It's
0: it's great, and uh, I want to get into uh, your, your seventh inning stretch uh, night. Uh, it was one of our favorites because you were uh, so excited, and I know it was one of those life moments for you. But the age of thirteen is interesting, JD, mm. because uh, that's that's when I was probably the biggest uh, baseball fan of my life. Like I watched every game I could every day. Now I was a baseball fan from you know very early age, but I think there's something about. Between like twelve and fifteen, that anything that you loved then will kind of stay with you the rest of your life, do you guys kind of feel that way
1: yeah for sure um and, and I think that that that's a sweet spot uh, I think it's um you know you're, you're still a pretty innocent kid at that age um, you haven't you know entered uh, the high school world yet, and you know the, all, all that comes with it the drama and dating and and all that stuff and you you kind of um just kind of clinging to the, to the, to your youth, to a certain extent and not to be too uh, melodramatic here, but yeah, that for me, that's the sweet spot. I think, you know, from ages uh, 10 to like 14, I was with you, man, I'm watching games every night. I had a score book. I would keep score at home. Um, uh, card collecting was a big deal for me uh, at that age. Um, and, and I wish I still had them. like I have the same, same story that everybody tells. I don't know where they went. I don't know if somebody threw them out, but I had all these baseball cards that, um, You know, as you go go off to college, you you don't really circle back to them. But at this phase of my life, I would love to go through my old baseball cards and and see just how many George Mitterwalds I had, you know, (laughs) but uh, but they're long gone.
2: Well, I can remember games from soccer games from the early 80s uh, more vividly than I can remember some games I've announced within the last month. It's remarkable how how it how it is imprinted on your memory. Same with song song lyrics. You put a I don't know. You put a Springsteen song on. You put a you know the Huey Lewis and the News on. I know it start to finish. You know, there's some some of my favourite bands that I got into in the late 90s. I can't remember the lyrics of. You know, it's it's just that age where your your brain is obviously a sponge, but also getting into the Cubs got me into broadcasting as well because coming back i i heard via somebody that I, that i used to go to school with that you could listen to american sports on on the AFRTS the armed forces radio and television service which which broadcast out of germany for the for the american bases in germany and it was i think a medium wave or perhaps a long wave signal that you would get sometimes pretty strongly and other times weakly and um, it was. I remember the old protractors that you had, the, the compasses with the with the point that you would stick in, and then you put the pencil in the other side of it to draw your circles. Sure. I had to engrave on on the on the radio the, the the dial exactly where this station was, and I would listen. I'd stay up sometimes. Mum and Dad would put me to bed. You know, whatever. Thirteen years old. And I would have my shortwave radio there and I would then crank it up at about midnight, one o'clock in the morning and listen to baseball games. And the announcers, you know, if you're a little kid in Leicester was hearing announcing from Chicago, from Los Angeles, from from New York, from Detroit. And it just took me to another world from, from this small world that I had to this big world that I'd experienced in Chicago and in America um, and some of the voices and the and the cadences and, and JD you're talking you know you mentioned that that you love a, a British turn of phrase well I'm exactly the opposite I enjoy the American turn of phrase and the way that that sports were announced and it just it fueled my desire to be initially a radio announcer in sports over here, but it's always drawn me back to the States, which is why I'm kind of in the perfect position doing the sport that I can actually be authoritative about to a degree, um, but for an American audience. So let's, let's
0: talk about the connections between the two sports. Uh, how would you verbalize that in terms of the intellectual nature of the two games?
2: I think storytelling is important. Um, I think every every player, every person involved in what you're seeing unfold before you has a story. I, I think where my admiration for you you guys and what you do is, is immense. In most, ninety nine point nine percent of your seasons, you're you're announcing I don't know twenty odd uh, spring training games, and then one hundred and sixty two regular season games and then you know with the Cubs recently straight into the postseason. I mean that's that's upwards of two hundred games. I mean I I probably do seventy. Um so I my approach would be slightly different. That every single individual game has its own story that perhaps didn't start yesterday and will continue tomorrow. This is something that's standalone um for a week. So I enjoy that side of it, the storytelling side of it. And that's why I don't give too many statistics necessarily, but I, I look at players' individual stories. Has something interesting happened to them during the week? Uh, are they a new signing from a foreign country? What is their story? But you have to get the balance right. And in, in soccer, and I'm, it's exactly the same, I, I guess, with you guys on the television with baseball, is sometimes... I think the audience appreciate the hum of the crowd in a ballpark, and and likewise in soccer they appreciate you laying out and letting letting you hear what the crowd are singing. That's not always a good idea in soccer with some of the fruity language. So sometimes you you start talking very quickly um, <laughs> because the the song is aimed at a referee that they don't they don't particularly like at, at that moment in time. But I think there's a there, there's a a combination and a, and I guess a skill involved in calling the action, the play-by-play as you see it, laying out and letting people experience what you're experiencing being at the game, and then when the time is right to to, to slot in a story or two. Um And I'd say that in terms of broadcasting, Len, would, would be where – our jobs um, are similar, but obviously you have to do it on a daily basis for an extraordinarily long period of time. Whereas me, it's generally speaking, two games a week.
0: I want to go back to your Chicago experience because you are uh, announcing these games uh, for an American audience uh, on NBC Sports, uh, but you're not from here. Uh, But i I'm, I'm I'm curious to know if you did not have that u s connection that you had when you were a teenager and family wise growing up mm. and now into your adult life uh do you think you would be able to do this and do you tailor your broadcast in any way for uh you know a cousin living in Chicago who's never been uh, to Europe watching a game uh in a
2: foreign country? <laughs> Well, that's a really interesting question, Len. I, I think I started in terms of broadcasting soccer to an American audience. I I went from the BBC. I was there for ten years on BBC Radio, and through various contacts, having having. Um, broadcast and, and done the play by play for five Super Bowls in six years and we actually traveled out to to the venues to do those. It was amazing for, a, for an American sports fan like like myself to be able to do that once a year. Um, so I got in touch with um, the people at the Seattle Sounders because they were heavily involved with this, with the Seahawks. Organization. Um, so, after a, a protracted period of of, of negotiation and, and talks, um, they offered me the job for their second season. So, in 2010, I relocated to to the West Coast, the Pacific Northwest. Had a fabulous two years out there, calling being the voice of the Sounders, which was my experience. I guess of of, of performing a role like the two of you who are employed by, as I understand it, the team themselves and um, there's, there's an ambassadorial element to it as well which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed immersing myself um, with the passion of a certain fan base. Um, it was it was wonderful but then NBC came knocking uh, when they acquired the rights to Major League Soccer and they, they pulled me over to them which I was happy to do because I was able to go to Olympic Games etc and call the US Women's National Team to a gold medal in London. That was fantastic and then after a season and a half of, of doing MLS games around the country for uh, for NBCSN, then they acquired the rights to, to the Premier League. So I'd had three and a half seasons or three and a half years of calling soccer for uh, an American audience before going back and then calling the Premier League. Now, you have to factor in as well that there are a lot of American soccer fans who are Premier League fans and don't have anything to do with Major League Soccer. There are some that are Major League Soccer fans and have nothing to do with another league. There are some that follow La Liga in Spain or Liga MX in Mexico and and don't follow the Premier League. So there's this huge swathe of of, of people, of soccer fans in the country that, that have different tastes and follow different leagues around, around the world. So for me it was it was not necessarily dumbing it down for for new audiences and and trying to find that sweet spot and not alienating the experts and what you find is that the premier league fan generally in america is very sophisticated they've they've much like nfl fans over here they've really invested a lot of time in in their team in in the league in knowing what they're talking about and i think these days with so much information available at the touch of a button at your fingertips, that that if you keep it to a good level, an intelligent level, then people will will raise up with you and they will find out and they'll get to your level themselves. Um and every job I've had, Seattle, NBC with MLS and NBC with the Premier League, I've said, how do you want me to pitch it? And all of them have said exactly the same thing. Be authentic it's like you're on the BBC. Now, obviously, there are certain phrases and certain things that I can say that tie the two nations together. Um, I can refer to a last-minute goal, almost like a last-second touchdown, famously that happened in Monday Night Football or something. I don't overdo that. I don't force it. If it comes into my mind, I'll say it. Um, but but generally speaking, the, the American soccer fan who follows the Premier League wants authenticity. And also because we are only two um, games of a 10-game slate over the course of a weekend. So if we were too Americanized, it would then, I think it would, it would grate against the the world feed, the Premier League productions feed for the other eight games, which will be very straight down the line and very English. So, you know, we, 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 I'm aware that there are Americans obviously watching. I don't necessarily pitch it to any particular age group. Um, I may use the odd turn of phrase, but generally speaking, it's authentically done like I would do to a domestic audience in England.
1: Having said all that, What's the deal with extra time? I still can't figure out extra
2: time. Well, there's extra time, which in a cup game would be 15 minutes each way um, in the event of a tie. So did that happen in the FA Cup final last week? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. But if a game ends in a tie, you go to extra time. At the end of a normal game, like a league game, which can, of course, end in a draw, or the the that we call a draw, you call a tie. You have injury time or stoppage yeah, time. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. one. that's the one. It's I'm a, trying to- it's. Kind of a mystery to us as well, J.D., you know, it's um, the referee is the man that, that holds holds the watch. So the clock will go to 90 minutes and then he's he's told the fourth official, I'm adding on five minutes for injuries, for substitutions, for goal celebration. So it's 30 seconds per substitution, 30 seconds oh, okay. per goal celebration. This is all in theory, by the way. He's never You never has to justify it in any way. It could, it, it's often, it seems an arbitrary random number. Um, and the and the guy will hold up a board saying five minutes. But then he could go over that too, because there might be more stoppages within the stoppages. Within the stoppages. So you okay. never know when that whistle is coming. And uh, that can be disconcerting, but it can also be quite exciting. But we never stop a clock with like half a second on it, like in basketball, um, although that provides just some incredible excitement at the end of games, doesn't it? But the the not knowing... Um, I wouldn't be at all, I wouldn't have any problem with them having a stadium clock with exactly how much time is left. I don't know why we still do it in this slightly archaic fashion.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It, it, but if, if, I think you nailed it, though, when you said it, it is exciting because as you're watching, you're like, how much time do they have? They, yeah. They're on a rush here. Are they, is something going to happen or are they going to run out of time? And that not knowing is is kind of interesting. It's, it's so bizarre, but it's... It's kind of interesting too.
2: And as an announcer, you often find yourself saying, this is it, this is the last chance and (laughs) nothing happens. (laughs) And then it's like, nope, nope, we're carrying on. (laughs) We're not there yet.
0: (laughs) We are with Arlo White and we will continue our conversation after a quick word from our sponsor. Dear adventurers, enjoy a summer of excitement with Toyota. Keep it wild in the rugged 4Runner. With its heritage of toughness, the Forerunner is ready for just about anything. Take charge in the 2020 Camry and conquer mountain roads with its available all-wheel drive. Or plan an epic road trip and get comfy while you cruise with your crew in the roomy Highlander Hybrid. And drive confidently all the way with electric on-demand all-wheel drive. Whichever you choose in a Toyota, you're sure to make the most of summer. Soak it up, Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealer or toyota.com to learn more. Arlo, I want to continue on the the soccer popularity around the world. And I have a theory, and uh, I could be totally wrong. Uh, When I was a kid, yes, I did follow the North American Soccer League. And then when they went indoors, you know, I remember the Washington Diplomats. And you mentioned the Sounders, the Chicago Sting. Uh, some of the indoor teams, the St. Louis Steamers and the Baltimore Blast. I remember all of those teams, but it never really caught on here. And something you said earlier resonated with me. And because a sports fan anywhere in the world can basically watch any league in the world, I have to think that People in the States who wanted to follow soccer having other options than just following the leagues here has really exploded the popularity around the world. In that, as you said, there are Premier League fans here who don't follow uh, Major League Soccer. And in a way, I think that's good because the sport is as popular and more popular in the world than it's ever been, and I think more popular in the
2: U.S., Mm. Well, firstly, I think Americans like to follow, traditionally like to follow the best of the best. And when it comes to the NBA, there's no doubt. Uh, the the rest of the world has a small problem with every sport calling in America calling themselves the world champions, but technically <laughs> I suppose they are because no one's beating the NBA champions from 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 around the world. No one's beating the world. I know the World Series started with a sponsorship from a newspaper, didn't it? Rather than calling it the World Series, but um, uh, no one's beating uh, whoever wins the World Series at, at, at baseball, and, and likewise, no one absolutely no one is winning or beating the Super Bowl champions. Um, But in those three sports, you are seeing the greatest players in the world and the greatest teams in the world. Now, with Major League Soccer that only came about in 1996, clearly they are at the very, very start of a long curve that most countries are 140 years into so you're not seeing you know ex- with the exception of a few players here and there largely at the end of their careers but you're not seeing the best of the best so the a lot of the american soccer fans it, with the advent of 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 cable tv and leagues being streamed into the into their front rooms they are now able to see the best of the best so this generation um, you know, coming through has been able to watch they're not they're not you know they're not there with shortwave radios under the under the covers like i was with baseball in the in the 80s and 90s they're able to Watch Cristiano Ronaldo at Real Madrid and Juventus, one of the greatest players of all time, and his adversary, Leno Messi. These two, these two have been like what would I say? Like Magic and Larry Bird, I guess, you know, the, the two greats of the era, Jordan and whoever his his main adversary was at the time. These are two, if if not, they're not the greatest players of all time, they're in the top four with Pele and Maradona. So we're very lucky that we've seen them during this era. Um and also i think you know with the advent of of cable tv satellite tv and the internet if baseball was became you know nationally hugely popular down to radio and then nfl became very very popular after the 1958 nfl championship game and and the advent of television then i think that soccer's popularity in the us which is growing all the time is down to the internet era as well um uh, and And I find that you know if, if I check my dms or my Instagram feed that there are scores of of young kids who are saying, "I love soccer, I love the Premier League. How do I become an announcer and and we 're seeing a younger generation coming through who are choosing soccer as their primary sport and and the good thing I think about the the Premier League, this is where we 're very fortunate is the timing of it, so the games are on a Saturday morning and a Sunday morning, it doesn't impinge on your social life. If you can set your alarm that early on a a weekend morning, you can watch an entire morning of sports. You can probably see your team play. And then you've still got the rest of the day to go out and do what you want. And then you watch your American sports for the rest of that day, college football, baseball, NFL, NBA, whatever it might be. So we're quite lucky that we, um, and I think this is the appeal to a lot of people, is you don't necessarily have to choose one or the other with Premier League. You can get into it. It's a bit of sports in the morning when there's nothing else happening live, and then you can follow your uh, your normal path uh, in a weekend afternoon. So that, I think that is attractive to a lot of people. There's also the people that like to drink at six a.m. on a Saturday morning, and you as an excuse.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the bloody Marys at, at the at the taverns are <laughs> yeah. off the charts now.
2: <laughs> if you drink Guinness for breakfast, the Premier League is the sport for you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
0: So we've had so many rules changes. Uh, some of them have been because of the unique 2020 season. Uh, others are to try to get that younger audience and get more action in the sport. But because it's been around since, uh, you know, the 1870s, uh, you have a lot of people who don't love change. Yeah, uh, I'm curious to know, as you look ahead over the next decade or so, I mean, do you anticipate rules changes uh, in soccer in general as, as time goes on? Um, or do you think that, that for the most part, even the most casual soccer fans essentially like the sport the way it
2: is? By and large. Soccer fans like the sport the way it is. It is always forever being tinkered with, of course. Um, I always point to uh, the year of the Battle of Gettysburg, 1863. That was when the laws of association football were laid down. And the way that the game would be administered and, and officiated, I should say, is one single referee who has to run up and down for the for the entire ninety minutes, and an assistant with a flag on one side who's running one half, an assistant on the other side who's running the other half. Now, that kind of worked for a number of years, but then TV came into the game with all its cameras and all its angles, and it was it's just proven that not only are there so many grey areas in 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 English I'm sorry in soccer laws we call them laws over here, um, they're also it's impossible in the modern day to officiate a game. Um, efficiently when there's only three of you. And one of one of the guys is the guy that has to make the decision. Now, what we've introduced over here recently is something called VAR, Video Assistant Referee. Um, we've kind of taken the lead from American sports that, that were way ahead of us in doing it. And the implement, implementation of it this year in the Premier League, which was, of course, was interrupted for three months, but this now we've got the whole season in the can, was a complete unmitigated disaster um it it created more problems than it solved and uh, a lot of fans are up in arms and fans and actually myself I said I went on record and said I look the referees need help because we're seeing offside calls that are blown and you know various things going wrong and and they just need a bit of help but the way that it's been implemented has just I wouldn't say ruined the game but it has adversely affected the game. All it's ended up doing because there are very few black and white decisions in soccer. A lot of them are down to interpretation. And all we're seeing is an extra layer of of subjective interpretation on top of what the referee has said. Um, so it has proven to be um unsuccessful, let, let's say. So hopefully they and they haven't got much time to work on it uh, in the turnaround before we have to start again. So hopefully they get it much better um second time around one thing that i that i think a lot of soccer fans fear maybe with its growing popularity in the us is when the league restarted after the the covid-19 shutdown um the the premier league instigated um mid uh first half and second half water breaks and it was the the idea was because they hadn't had as long to to prepare for the players for for the restart that you know and it's going to be summer it was going to be hot um they could take on some fluids well, that turned into effectively a timeout because the players would take on their fluids and the managers would walk out and start giving coaching to the, to their players. Now, I quite liked it because it added a different layer to the game that suddenly t- managers were able to more successfully change the tactics in the game to respond to what had happened in the first, in theory, 22 and a half minutes. Um, and a, it, what a lot of people fear is the the American style, well, there's the water break and let's pause and and go away for a, a commercial, um, and, of course, there are no stoppages in soccer. So in, in order to monetize it, I think American TV companies are struggling because it's like, well, we can put an advert up by the scoreboard. I can say a couple of sponsor reads, uh, and we can throw some advertising into the post-game, pre-game, halftime show. But essentially, you can't get much advertising into the run of play when most people are watching. So I think although people enjoyed that break – and, and what it, what it did to the game itself, the fascinating layer that it added, I think one or two are quite fearful that the introduction of effectively quarters instead of halves might be pounced upon by television companies. So they're keen to, uh, to maintain the integrity of the 45 minutes each way. But by and large, aside from the odd tweak here and there, the laws are pretty much the same. And I think they'll, they'll remain that way. As someone who does television, I think
0: they're right. <laughs> they are going to try to insert advertising. It's the way of the world. All right. We mm-hmm. saved the best for last, Arlo. Your trip to Wrigley Field during which you conducted the seventh inning stretch. Uh, take us through that day and uh, uh, how it felt.
2: Top three day, I think, of all time. Um, birth of my kids being one of those days. Um Oh man, uh, where do I start? Well, I, Max, who who is listening, Max Berman, who is uh, involved in the in the game day entertainments, of course, uh, at the at the Cubs, is a, is, and I don't think I'm, I'm giving away any uh, secrets here. Is a huge Liverpool fan, so uh, so we we connected through uh, my love of the Cubs and Chicago and his love of, of Liverpool, and uh, we carried on speaking, and uh, he invited me um, very graciously to uh, to throw out the first pitch at Wrigley Field because I said I was coming over. I would be a a game. Um, I was going to go to the the Bears opener on the Thursday night against the uh, the Packers as well. So it all kind of. It worked out so fantastic that would be absolutely awesome and then you know i had a, a nervous three months so i actually went to my local uh, gym with a baseball and got my personal trainer to go 60 odd feet away and i was throwing baseballs to him <laughs> once a week to make sure <laughs> that the throw would reach the catcher um and then on the morning i remember waking up in the hotel and, and max emailed me he said oh um, on the off chance, uh, looking forward to tonight. But on the off chance, would you be able to sing the seventh inning stretch?
1: Oh, I didn't I, know this. I
2: thought the stretch
0: yeah. was always part of it. No, interesting.
2: No. So I, I look, I look, I, ask Max, Max about this. But I, I wonder if I don't know whether people have got very nervous about it and pulled out. I don't know. So, so when you have very little time to think about it, I think I think you're more likely to do it. Um, and I, I knew I would say ninety-five percent of the words uh and my well, I'd say probably 85 percent and my uncle bill and i who sat together in great seats for the game against the mariners um he went through the whole thing with me you know th- after throwing the pitch and it reached the plate just wide of the plate but didn't bounce so that was a good start to the evening um and uh and then so he's he's drilling into me the words and we went upstairs and to be able to to bring kath and bill who you know just been Cubs fans for their entire life, seventy odd years. You know they introduced me to the Cubs. They they introduced me to Harry Carey and you know the the legend that is. And to and to stand with you guys, having called half an inning or a couple of outs on on um, on on TV as well was just astonishing. And and I remember I remember looking around at Kath and Bill and getting them down when I started singing. But once that out happened the pace in which the lights came on and, and I had a microphone thrust into my hand was <laughs> extraordinary. And, and, and the music started. I remember, I remember saying, um, something about the Cubs. Hi, you might not, you know, something about being English or whatever, and then take me out and looking out and there being 42,000 people out there. It was just amazing. It was over all too quickly. Um, and I, th- I think I said something at the end, uh, like, look, we'll see you in London next year, which of course sadly didn't happen, but hopefully we can we can fire that up again next season um, at the London Stadium. And uh, just the look on Kath and Bill's face as they were stood in the announcement at Wrigley Field looking out a view they'd never had before in their 70 years of fandom, or certainly Uncle Bill's 70 years of fandom, was just an amazing moment. And, and uh, you know, I thank you two for looking after me as, as wonderfully as you did. And um, that will remain one of, the most memorable experiences of my entire life so i thank you for that
0: well this is my 16th year and jd has been here for what nine now jd uh
1: this is number eight
0: number eight so we've had a lot of seventh inning stretch guests and i can tell you honestly that was one of my all-time favorites because i knew how much it meant to you uh it was great to meet bill and kath as well and the social media uh, reaction to not only your stretch, but uh, the interview we did uh, was incredible. And uh, oh, I, nice. I think if, if there were some fans out there who didn't know you or weren't even soccer fans, I'm guessing you created mm-hmm. some that night. I'm, I'm, I'm honest about this. I, I, I think you really won over a lot of people that night. And uh, I hope we're able to do it again very soon, the next time you're able to come to Chicago.
2: That would be awesome. And, you know, the times when, you know, during the depths of lockdown and the uncertainty about, you know, you know, at times you, you worry about your job and you worry about your future and you worry about your parents' health and all that sort of thing, you know, I'd be lying in bed and I I, I that's my go-to video. And and I feel a million bucks after putting that on because it was just so amazing. And 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 my love, you know, of Chicago, of the Cubs, and 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 making contact with you guys and doing something like that, you know, maybe had a tangible effect on my life again because um, the Chicago Fire reached out. And I'm go. I've officially joined the Chicago Fire's broadcast team for their move back. to It was supposed to have already started, but of course, COVID has got in the way. Um, but they're moving. They've rebranded. They're moving from Bridgeview uh, back down to, to Soldier Field. Um, you know, they had over forty thousand tickets sold for the home opener, and sadly, that was postponed. So we we hope to do it again next year. But um, so the, so the links with Chicago, you know, just get 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 firmer and firmer all the time. And I'm just absolutely delighted with it. So so I'll hopefully get over for three or four visits during the Premier League offseason each season uh, to call fire games. And I'll certainly be uh, making Wrigley Field <laughs> my second stop.
0: That would be great. And uh, I'm going to do something we haven't done on the podcast. Max? <laughs> Max? Thanks. I know you're on mute. Hi, guys. On, Max. Hi, Max. I want you to, uh, to 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 have the final word or final question. For Arlo, and thank you for bringing him to Wrigley Field because that was uh, a very memorable night. So, Max, you have the stage. Ask him any Premier League question you want, no matter how specific it is.
3: Well, thank you for that. Um, (laughs) First and foremost, Arlo, it's been a joy to get to meet you, and I echo Len and JD in saying that was in my five years uh, plus a few more doing various other roles one of the best stretches I've ever seen for sure. The shout out to Kath and Bill after the first sentence of the song is is memorable and i'll never forget that i suppose my primarily question on the spot is going to be what's your outlook for the 2020 2021 oh come on that's boring you don't need to pander to the crowd here
2: I guess what you want to know, Max, is um are your team Liverpool going to repeat? Now they just yeah. won their first title. There's a bit of a, a Cubsy type link here because Liverpool are a massive soccer institution in this country, much like the Cubs are in, in, in the States, of course. Um their their wait wasn't quite as long as the Cubs for a World Series, but 30 years was a decent chunk of time for a team that, that dominated in the 80s, the 70s and 80s. They won something like 12 out of no 10 out of 50 titles I think it was um, and then they just crashed and suddenly Manchester United were the preeminent team and then came Chelsea and Arsenal and those sort of teams so they, they fell well off the pace but they're, they're back now they have this incredibly charismatic Joe Madden type character in Jurgen Klopp from Germany and he has taken the entire institution much like Joe did on his back with his strength of personality and his charisma and his talents as a manager, of course. And he has led the team to the promised land. So so at the moment, Liverpool are champions of the world, champions of Europe and champions of England, individual competitions all at the same time. And I don't see, Max, any reason why... Uh, But they've got a target on their backs now. But I don't see any reason why they can't repeat as Premier League champions next season. Now, it's going to be odd again because the the pre-season or the off-season is so short. And we're back into this on September the 12th. Uh, no crowds. We think the crowds may start to come back. It depends on, you know, touch wood, a second wave not happening. Um, maybe the crowds come back at a certain percentage uh, in October, maybe November, and we can start to get back to normal. Because much like Wrigley Field has that unique atmosphere, Anfield is renowned. Uh, for its atmosphere and the singing of you'll never walk alone before the game by 52,000 people is something very, very special indeed. Um, so there's there's real synergy, I think, between the Cubs, even though they're, they're, they're run by FSG, which, which is the Red Sox. But I think there's huge synergy between the Cubs and, and Liverpool um, at the moment. So I think, Max, I think your Reds can repeat as champions, but they would face stiff competition from Manchester City and perhaps Chelsea uh, going into the new season.
3: No, wait, I have, one, I have one more follow-up, Len, if I'm allowed. I
2: love it. it. Yes, kind of get in the weeds here.
0: Don't just ask a general question. Come on, Max.
3: This this a little more in the weeds. Arlo, you were fortunate to be at Anfield uh, a month ago, a few weeks ago, when they raised the trophy in front of no fans, just in front of their families, right? They allowed families in, and you, a couple of broadcasters. Yeah. What, what was that like, and can you give us any sort of inside story that maybe we didn't see on TV on that night
2: from the trophy raising yeah, it was an amazing night, really, because they obviously, after a thirty year wait, all of a sudden, this fan base you know the 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 season ticket holders people that have waited for this moment for so long weren't able to be in in the stadium now, usually you would have a sta- a stage in the middle of the uh, of the pitch, you know the lifting of the trophy, the confetti, the fireworks, and then a the lap of honor with the trophy, and people going crazy. Um, and that didn't happen. There were more than a few outside, um, as I discovered upon leaving the stadium. There were lots of red flares and smoke and one or two empty bottles on the floor as well. Um, they kind of broke the guidelines. But, you know, I, I, who was going to arrest people that night, you know, celebrating something like that? But what Liverpool decided to do was build a stage in the famous COP, KOP. It's what we used to call when you used to stand at soccer grounds these big stands behind the goals that were just steps and used to stand up for 90 minutes or almost two hours, uh, and sway with the crowd. And it used to be, I think on the cop, something like 28,000 people. Now, you know, after the Hillsborough disaster, of, uh, in the nineties, um, we had to go to all seater stadiums probably for the right reasons um so the, the i think there are eighteen thousand seats or so on the cop and it's just this iconic piece of real estate that uh, is is famous throughout the world so they decided that they were going to throw some money at this and they built a stage within the cop so it was almost like they were in their spiritual home the fans couldn't be there so we'll be amongst where the fans are um, and they spent, you know, a million dollars or whatever it was on pyrotechnics, and and it was it was spectacular. Um, it obviously wasn't the same, but I think you know. Uh Without the crowd present, it was as good as it was going to be. And I think now Liverpool as a team, if you're looking, when you reach the top of the mountain, it's often very difficult to stay there, isn't it? And if you're looking for motivation and avenues of motivation to to keep you there when the target's on your back and they're all coming for your title, to relieve you of your title, J.D., um, <laughs> I think then the motivation for Liverpool is, let's do it again when our fans are there. So I think that would be something they would strive for for next season, most definitely.
0: Arlo, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we could have done two hours here easily. And uh, stay safe and sound and uh, enjoy the, uh, the, the, the few days left you have of your freedom before it kicks
2: off again. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure uh, talking to both of you um, and and many thanks once again for having me on and for looking after me at Wrigley Field on the, on what was a very memorable night. Good luck for the rest of the season.
1: We'll see you at the ballpark.
0: Great stuff with uh, Arlo and uh, we did get some uh, meaty soccer info at the end with, with Max Berman, which was nice.
1: Yeah, Max really brought it. You know, he's he may become a, an important part of this podcast going forward. We need that kind of insight. Uh, Arlo's fun, right? You know, he's a he's a self-described uh, American file, and especially Chicago. He loves Chicago. He was named after Arlo Guthrie, um, and and I, I just love the turn of phrase. You know, we, we had some fun with it. Relieved of the title. Uh, it reminds me of baseball when a player gets released and he says, you know, the, the verbiage is he's been granted his release as if it was something, you know, a player pined for, you know, get me out of here.
0: Yeah. And a third place team now in the division, we're going to say middle of the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have uh do you have a, uh, an admission this week? Anything interesting? Well,
1: I, I, I've got a couple of things that are gnawing at me a little bit. One, uh, as a society, we've gone way downhill with perforation. Perforation doesn't work anymore. There's a the little lines there, but they're not really helping you open anything up. So I'd like to see country tighten up perforation.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: the other thing is, um, my sister uh, invited me to play words with friends, and that that's kind of a passe pastime. I but I've been playing with her, and then I got hooked into playing the computer. And the freaking computer cheats. It makes up words that aren't words all the time, and I got an issue with that too. So those are the two things that are not at me.
0: Yeah, I uh, I used to play words with friends, and and you're right. Uh, you can make up just a conglomerate of letters, and <laughs> yes. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm all for uh, your your point about perforation, except for a colon. You do not want to perforate a no, colon. You do
1: not. That, that no. would be bad. Yeah.
0: No. Uh, Special thanks to Max. You heard Max on the podcast. Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Obojkovic, Shane McGuire, Adam Sobel. For Jim Deshays. I'm Len Casper. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. We will talk to you next week on Open Concessions presented by Toyota.